Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security's Security Confidential. Today, we are honored and privileged to have Ross Young join us. Ross is currently the CISO of Caterpillar Financial Services. He is the co-host of CISO Tradecraft, a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University, and a SANS instructor. He has formerly worked for the CIA, NSA, the Federal Reserve, and Capital One. Ross is the creator of the OWASP Threat and Safeguard Matrix. Welcome to the show, Ross. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be here. I really appreciate it. So, you know, to start this off, we're all curious, you know, uh, to be the CISO of Caterpillar Financial Services is, is an enormous responsibility. How did you get there? What was your pathway? If you give us a little, uh, little bit of a background here for all the fledgling CISOs. Sure. So I started off with a computer science degree and, and I did a business major on top of that. And, and through my computer science program, I really figured out that I wanted to do cybersecurity in 2004, 2005. So I focused on getting an MBA and Office of Personnel Management, OPM, yep. had a program called S Scholarship for Service. It's also called CyberCore. And okay. what they said is, hey, we need more good people to work for the U.S. federal government. You know, we don't normally pay as much as the commercial side. So how, do we, how about we do something like ROTC? We'll pay you to go to college for two years, and then afterwards you come to work for the federal government. Okay. And you know, me wanting to, to learn how to hack and do all the cool things in cybersecurity, I thought that was a good deal. I got free college, and I wanted to work for NSA and CIA. And so that's what I really focused on. I had a great internship at NSA doing access control solutions. I worked for about a year at the Federal Reserve while I was uh, waiting for my CIA uh, clearance to come through. And then I, I spent about 10 and a half years there and just had a, a fantastic career. So I, I couldn't have been luckier. So are you from the DC area? Were you in that circle there? Uh, uh, no, not, not originally. I was a military brat, so I moved around. And uh, I did college in Utah and, and Idaho. So more out west than more out oh, east. And uh, you ended up working for all these uh, illustrious agencies. That's because usually we hear, uh, you know, the the NSA, well, the CIA, they recruit a lot locally there, and they get kids, very bright young kids uh, that come on board and, and start an internship, and who knows where that leads for them. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a huge focus of how do you find the right folks who speak foreign languages and, and have poli-sci backgrounds. You know, cyber is, is really a big thing. Uh, when I went and started there, we're talking 2008 timeframe, you know, cyber was starting to pick up, right? So it was a good focus. And where can we find bright individuals? And that scholarship for service was a really good talent pipeline where they love to find good students to come into the program. Do you know, is that still in existence today? It is still in existence. There's, I, I want to say, 150 different schools on that. So if you go to Scholarship for Service, uh, it's sfs.opm.gov. You can find the program, and they're still getting out great scholarships today. So if anybody has kids or they are you know, in college and want to do that, highly recommend the program. Uh, we will put the, the link in the show notes so that everyone can uh, click on it. That's, that's excellent that that's available. So tell us a little bit about um your time in the nsa cia uh, things that you could share of course but 
what what was your uh, learnings about foreign capabilities as it came to their uh, ability to attack us uh, from a cyber perspective? Well, you know, I, I don't think there's anything that different than what you would see in the commercial sector, right? You have people who have access to data that they want, and so they want to target those individuals. And, you know, it, it's very common when you think about how am I going to target somebody? I, I need to find them, right? I need to find a phone number. I need to find an address or a LinkedIn account and target from there, right? And, and what are you going to see folks do? They're going to look on social media sources, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the, the, the LinkedIn. They're going to try to find people who have access, right? And, and then they're going to have some type of pitch that, that, that gets you to connect to that individual. And, and, and then they're, they're trying to find a way to either recruit that person for, for nefarious, person, uh, nefarious reasons, or they're going to leverage that access to get into the target. So it, it's not really that different from traditional red teaming operations, where you may say, okay, I'm worried about people who are database admins in my organization because they have access to a lot of data that, I, I, that would be sensitive. So let's take a, a person like that who has a social media profile on LinkedIn. How can we find that individual? How can we create you know, targeted messages to that individual to get his email address and, and send him you know, something malicious that's gonna allow us to land on that machine? And, and so as we start to think about that, you think about, well, how many of us fail a phishing exercise in our organization? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 2%? And, and then you just play the numbers, right? If it's 5%, that means I got to send 20 emails to find the, the right one target, right? That's not that hard to do. Yeah, and right? I guess if you're persistent at it enough, You'll get it. And if you're good enough, I mean, if the phishing emails, some are dead easy to spot, but then I can tell you in our own experience, we've had some come into our own organization where we look, well, that's a, that's one to hang on the wall and frame up. That was a great message. And they actually knew a lot about the people and, and they wrote that in their email, right? And, and we made a whole bunch of changes as a result. Uh, to make sure that we lock down certain aspects of access in the organization um, because of that. Yeah, and, and and it's really interesting because there's not a lot that you do to verify who someone is online, right? They didn't put in a driver's license. They just created a random email or a random social media. So it is very easy to create a misattributable uh, source, right? And so that's what I think people forget that when I meet somebody in face-to-face, in -face, you have a better idea who that person is. But online, you don't know if this is a 40-year-old male or a 14-year-old child, right? It could be anything they signed up for and filled those credentials out as. You're absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, it brings to a question here. Um, when this kind of intelligence gathering is going on, we look at organizations, especially the ones that you've worked for, when it comes to compliance, these guys have probably checked every box in the book when it comes to compliance, but they still end up getting breached. So there isn't necessarily a correlation, um, it appears, between being compliant and having a 
good multi-layered cyber security program in place? Or am I reading that wrong? So let's think about compliance and what it actually means and where it falls short. At the end of the day, you probably have something that says, we're going to map to a cybersecurity framework. Sure. And let's just say you use NIST CSF or ISO sure. 27000. And then it's going to say, here are the, the 15 different domains you have to do with the 500 controls that you need to be there. And then you have auditors and regulators who come and knock on your door and say, oh, looks like control number 217 you haven't implemented to the fullest extent as we would see as, as reasonable. And so you'll get a finding on that, and then you'll have work to do all those things that need to happen. The problem is there's no focus that says, let's start with the basics. We need to learn how to crawl before we can walk and know how to run. And, and you can think about this in the CIS top 20, where they say the number one basic is you need a software inventory. Yeah. And then after that, you need to have an asset or a vulnerability management program. And if you don't have those two basics, it doesn't really matter that you have pen tests. But what an audit and a compliance program will say, oh, you're not doing enough pen tests. But the reality is if I don't even have a basic inventory and I don't have basic patching, you know, well implemented, doesn't really matter what I have for pen testing because I still can't patch 90 days. You know, things like that are where compliance doesn't understand the prioritization of tasking, right? And, and the other thing is compliance frameworks are written at a piece in time and the threats evolve. So when they wrote the compliance, was it written in 2017 and ransomware hadn't been as impactful because it right. just really started in 2019, 2020. So maybe they focused on the wrong things and, and now they need to have an update to the compliance framework. And, and maybe it's new technologies, right? So if you're using RASP tools, runtime application self-protection, deception technologies, and they didn't exist in 2018 or weren't heavy mainstream, well, now you're kind of doing compliance work instead of what really secures the organization. I'm glad you said that because that's going to, I think a lot of our listeners are going to find that extremely helpful uh, because there's that distinction. People um, often, especially in our sector, we deal a lot with SMB. They, they, there's this, in their mind, there's this correlation that we're compliant, we passed our audits, we're good, we don't have to worry about anything. And Oh, yeah, there's a lot of compliant companies that get breached every day. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, you look at some of the top breaches uh, in the last several years. I think, what was it, Yahoo, 3 billion records taken. Uh, that was enormous. I'm sure they had fantastic, uh, a really good cybersecurity program in place. Target probably had a great uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, right? I mean, I would imagine they their cybersecurity you know, practitioners are pretty solid people and they had a, a significant taking there. And then right lately, CNA Insurance, which is a megacorp, right? They they got hit. So uh, again, uh, that you, what you're absolutely right is that the compliance part is not working well with prioritizing. And, and perhaps there needs to be an evolution on that whole topic. Uh, I don't know if we'll get it in our industry because there's a lot of revenue with a lot of accounting firms tied to it with doing audits, but um, there needs to be some updates made and some changes made so that there is some correlation there or better correlation, I should say. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we need to say, when I have a finding, where does it get racked and stacked against all the other cybersecurity threats so that I don't have to take away from my resources to focus on a low-risk item when I still have high-risk items exactly. that I haven't done well enough? Exactly correct. Even if you took the CIS top 10 and you just solidly worked on those, you'd probably have a pretty good, you'd have a pretty decent uh, program for for a smaller company, uh, right? So let's. Uh, this brings us to another uh, one of your statements um, uh, that I saw on a slide you had put up uh, at an old Wasp presentation that you know cyber is the business of revenue protection, and I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me if I got that wrong, but. You know, I, I'd like to add to it that perhaps cyber should be considered as a means of revenue generation. And um, I don't know if you've seen in your experience companies that might have leveraged cybersecurity or the technology elements of cybersecurity to actually generate revenue and create new products and services that they couldn't do before. Yeah, so I, I think there's two pieces here where cyber can really help generate revenue for the business. A lot of times we're viewed as a loss leader, right. but I, I think we also have to look at how we're saving the money from breaches that would cost even more money, right? So, but if we say, how do we bring new money into the business? The first thing that comes to mind for me is compliance. So let's say I, I want to sell to a large healthcare organization or a large yeah. bank, and I am a software manufacturer, right? I, I build a, a website that does X sort of thing. Well, it would not be unheard of for them to say, okay, before we actually approve you, we're going to ask for you to complete a cloud security vendor questionnaire. We're also going to require you to have a SOC 2 type 2 audit or an ISO 27000 report. And if you've not done those things, then you're not going to be able to sell to certain types of customers. And so in this way, by having cybersecurity complete those things and show that you have good security practices in the organization, you've enabled the business to sell to more customers and bring more revenue into the company. Another thing that I would also say is brand reputation is another piece. Yeah. Nobody wants to choose a company that is breached all the time, sure. right? That just sounds like a horrible nightmare for me losing my, you know, PII, personally identifiable information. So if you can show me that you've built up a robust security program, that can enable partnerships for the organization because they are doing due diligence during mergers and acquisitions, during third-party risk assessments to make sure that this company will safeguard their data when they're sharing that with the company. You're absolutely right. And let me ask you, do you, when you're doing your own risk scoring, are you putting a number against brand reputation? I don't think we have a particular brand reputation number that I've seen. What, what I typically see in organization is they'll start with something like the Cloud Security Alliance uh, CAIQ, which is a uh, vendor assessment questionnaire, and they'll say yes or no, do they do these things, and have that as a way to identify how they're doing. And and I think other organizations will also you know look at their social media scores to view how things are trending, positive or negative. And obviously, if you've had a cybersecurity breach, you know, you might start to see things very negative on Twitter and other things when people are talking about your, your product. 
And, and normally you see this not from a cyber perspective, but more from an IT availability perspective. So uh, imagine, you know, your, your Capital One or some other large top 10 bank. If people can't get access to their money on Paycheck Friday, oh. they're going to be pissed, yeah. right? They're just, they got bills to pay. They got things to do. And so you're going to see that negative sentiment in, in the social media. But if everything looks good, you're not going to see that. So, so that's a little bit of how you can measure, you know, some of the brand reputation. Uh, that's a, a really good practical pointer on how to, how to do that. I think Target, uh, I want to say three years ago now, uh, in one of their own published uh, annual reports, they said that their loss exposure was like, 350 million and then they actually cited a number for the loss in potential sales that would have occurred had the calamity not taken place right yeah and that was I the mean, first I time i saw probably that say... in a, like a an unofficial document that's published out there for everybody that you know there was a yeah i mean just just if you were thinking about Target, hey, this week we did X millions of sales. The week post-breach, when we had all that negative post publicity, did our sales go down 10% because customers just didn't feel safe from coming into the store? I, I don't know the answer to that one, but it's a good question. And, and likely, was right. it 10 or or did people not come in because they were pissed? Because they're like, God dang it. I, and I had to get my credit card changed or at least go and get your driver's license number changed. You got to change some stuff if you're not, we'll get to that <laughs> if we have time, uh, if, if you do get hit, but it's a good question. Yeah, what was that? So uh, let's, you know, as, as we look at Target, well, retail in general, uh, all of the industry's been hit in this uh, pandemic that was completely unplanned for. What do you think has changed in terms of the threat landscape uh, with all of us going to remote work and going and accelerating our adoption of cloud, if you will? I know it's- So there's a, a couple of things I think that are, are changing right now with this remote landscape. The first thing that I will say is training really changes. Where you may have had in-person training, yep. now everything's remote. And how, interesting is remote online training could be really good or it could be really crappy depending on what content you're purchasing for your organization and do you think people are giving it the same level of attention right if i'm taking this annual required training do i just have that on and i'm just kind of clicking through the links while i have i don't know march madness on in my other tab and my other browser so I'm not really getting trained on what I need to do to improve my security awareness or whatever those training pieces are. The other piece that I would say is in this environment where you're not around your colleagues, I think you're going to see business relationships start to get a little bit more strained. And, and what I mean by that is if, if I'm in cyber or if I'm in an IT organization, I might go out to lunch with my colleagues, right? I might get to know them a little bit better, particularly if they're not in my line of business and I need to really influence right. them a lot. Nobody really wants to have an online lunch meeting in Zoom, no. right? It, it, it's, 
it's like really so you're you're not building up that same level of trust in the relationship and so now things just become a little bit more strained and then if people start working more hours it's just it becomes a little bit rougher to make some of the more complex things that need a lot more influence to to achieve you know it's um from a relationship building perspective it's become very very difficult i think those lunches were supremely important believe it or not once they're gone you realize how valuable they actually were because it gave you a chance to sit down with people and get to know them and actually develop a rapport and a communication with them the other piece where i think cyber is also starting to get a little bit challenged is how did most let's say CISOs and other IT folks really get to learn from the vendors selling in, in the space. Well, we might've went to a large conference. We might've went through the vendor hall and got to see a lot of interesting solutions. But now that it's online, am I really interested in going and clicking through a lot of vendor pitches online? Probably not the same level of experience. And so am I missing out to new opportunities and new emerging technologies that could really help secure my organization. You know, on that one, Ross, I can t tell you our direct experience. We um, we sponsored several virtual conferences this past year, and I, I would say that the results were very disappointing uh, because you nailed it. You know, I I don't think people uh, don't want to go. Uh, to a virtual vendor hall and, you know, talk to people. Uh, when it's vendor hall time, people are off, uh, you know, having a cup of coffee or, or getting caught up on the news, whatever may be happening. But you're absolutely correct. We didn't, when you're not in person, we saw the level of participation go way down. And, and it's just different because in person, you know, maybe I'm not super interested in this one vendor, but I'll go over there for a tchotchke or something yeah. swag that I can give my kid. Hey, it's this cool bouncy ball that lights yeah. up, right? And then, you know, surprisingly, you may be like, wow, I didn't know your company did that. And you could have learned a really cool thing that may have got you interested in their product. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's absolutely suffered. What about... Uh, where people have gotten into a situation, you know, there was a lot of people that were going through and migrating to the cloud. And now we have a situation where you don't have a cloud, you got all these clouds, you got people using Amazon Web Services, you got them, you have them using Azure, they might still have some on prem stuff that they have to have. Has that not created a much greater degree of complexity in terms of managing vulnerabilities and than what it was in the past. So I, I think the cloud provides a lot of good benefits. I, do, I don't want people to think that the cloud is a bad thing. However, I also think the cloud invites complexity. And, and let me give you an example of this. Let's say your organization was just running VMware and you had on-prem. It was pretty easy to maintain that. We knew what we had, we knew patching, you know, maybe we weren't as good as an organization at doing everything in a timely manner and it was a little slower, but you knew what you had. Go to the cloud and, and you say, okay, we're gonna adopt Amazon. 
okay, how many services did you go to in the cloud? Was it 150 two years ago? Was it 300 right now? Which services has your security team actually gone through, looked at, and made sure they're not misconfigured, right? And, and that is changing so fast all the time. And, and so going to the cloud makes things a little bit tricky because just think of a configuration management database where you say, okay, all I wanna know is all my, my internet facing websites. Mm -hmm. Well, before in the VMware world, we would have just said, okay, let's just look for what IP addresses and URLs that are being forwarded from the load okay. balancers. But now I have to look at my DNS entries. I have to look at my S3 buckets. I, I have to look in a lot of different places that I didn't even have created in a CMDB system before. And, and then how do I know if those things are changing and those things are, are, are active? Because before I might've changed my systems every 60 days, but now if I have things dynamically scaling in the cloud and they're coming alive for only a day or hours, well, I can't really make sure my CMDB system is is totally updated. Human manual processes don't scale. So there's a lot of complexities with going to the cloud and then you got to buy more technologies to secure what you're doing. And, and ultimately all that functionality is a trade-off with security. So you have to be able to understand the new functionality in order to really get the best security. Yeah, I think, um, and, and we've, we've run into this quite a bit that there's also this notion not by a, a group of people that if I'm going to Azure, then Microsoft's taking care of my security. But if they read the fine print in their contract, that is not the case. I mean, Microsoft is providing you and Amazon's providing you a service, but you're responsible for the security of that information, not them. Oh, definitely. There's there's a shared partnership of security, right? They will do certain levels of security based on the service, right? So if you buy something like Lambda, they're doing the OS and the middleware patching, but you still have all the application vulnerabilities. You still have to do all the access control and identity management pieces. And if you mess those things up, bad things happen, right? And in, in different layers for different things. So if you're doing an EC2 server, they're not doing the OS or middleware patching. So if somebody doesn't understand that, they'll be just as unpatched as, as before on the on-prem solution. You know, and you're, you're again, absolutely correct. Um, and when you look at these systems, and then we, we add in another complexity that a lot of times there is our own developed technologies and software that's going onto those systems. How do you develop in the case for any organization, a highly resilient software system. Because that, I mean, you may be building on open source products, you may be building and borrowing various components, you, and then there should be an entire QA cycle at the end just for security. But a lot of times all those things are skipped, you know, they or they don't take priority. How in your mind should you go about building a resilient software system? So to me, I think we need to think of security vulnerabilities into three major classes. Okay. And then I think we also have to have a really good model around what we're building. And so when we go to the first piece and say, what are the real types of vulnerabilities and attacks we get? 
we get vulnerabilities that come from lack of patching. So if you can't patch well enough, that's your first issue. The second thing I would say is if you're using any uh, commercial or open source tool, it's is it securely configured, right? We can go to things like uh, the DISA STIGs. We can look at CIS uh, configuration guidelines and benchmarks of how to do that. And then the last thing is here's the unique software that we built. It's not an open source piece we're including that no patching and no misconfigurations are going to help us because it's everything we wrote by ourselves. And in that, your best case is how do we teach people secure developer principles, right? So we've taught them like the OWASP top 10 uh, types of sure. attacks. And we teach them secure development principles like, okay, we need to sanitize user input. We can't trust it because people can fuzz it with whatever, whatever malicious right. things they want to do. And, and how do we create some basic tests to say, here is a normal piece of traffic and here's an anti-pattern. And this is you know, putting the apostrophes and the other weird symbols to generate a, a malicious input. And if we do those sorts of things on all of our inputs and we can do these automated tests, so things like Selenium Grid uh, or Helium can do these automated tests, then we know when we patch and update any of our things if it broke, because these automated tests won't go through. I think those key principles of focusing on those big three and looking for things like threat modeling, what could go wrong, how are we gonna know when it happens, and what are we gonna do about it, are really the key ways we build resiliency into our products. You know, and speed is the enemy of all of that. So when we're looking at those products, your speed to market often mandates that certain things not happen. And uh, that is the natural enemy, if you will, of, of building some of the, these security concepts into the products, unfortunately. And I think that's a trade-off that companies have to evaluate. They gotta look at that and say, in this day and age, does this make sense? Do we just go to market and skip some of these tests that we should be doing? Yeah, and, and hopefully it comes back to what risks am I willing to take as a business, right? And it, it comes back to the brand reputation of if I build this product that has a lot of security issues, you know, do we think these are going to be exercised? And when they do, how much is it going to cost us? And is that let is that amount greater or less than the time to market, right? If I can make a million dollars really quickly and then make a quick patch, you know, a week later, but I don't think the attack is going to be exercised, that may be a great business move. But if I think the vulnerability is a high likelihood and has the ability to damage my brand and it's a 90% chance I'm going to lose a million dollars, probably a bad idea. Yeah, you know, we had a... Um an executive on once and and his opinion was look at zoom it didn't matter to them they got a lot of bad press about it but they're today even more profitable than they were a year ago when all this started so that was his counterpoint to it he said well yeah we time to market is king we got to get there first and we realize sometimes we may not have the most secure application but we got to do it that's just another point of view. Uh, I know I want to get to the 
threat matrix that you have invented. I'd love, can you explain a little bit about it? I watched your presentation, was fascinated by it, thought it was a brilliant way to take a very complex topic and bring it into a very practical uh, way to, uh, in an organization uh, to look at security. What is the threat and safeguard matrix and some of the principles behind it for our listeners? So if you think about what we're trying to do, we're trying to lower our risk in an organization. And, and so what do organizations normally start with? They start with a, a risk matrix or a risk register, which says, here's all my risks. What's the likelihood and impact of those happening? And then they build out a risk treatment plan. And, and when I saw that, I saw the risk treatment plans were very trivial and didn't really protect the company. Right, So we say, okay, phishing or, or ransomware is the biggest thing, and what are we going to do? We're going to put a one line in there that says all we're going to do is train people around it and patch our okay. systems. And, and that didn't really feel right to me. So I, I said, okay, how can we take this a level deeper? And so what we start is on the left side, we, we have different threats because you don't really stop the risk. You stop the threat right. from happening. And as you list out your threats of, I, there's a threat of phishing, you know, there's a threat of third-party data loss, there's a threat of ransomware. Then what you need to say, okay, let's use the NIST functions. And so there's a matrix of those threats on the horizontal side going across. And on the vertical columns, we use the NIST five functions of identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And this really builds a defense in depth approach. So if you just take the simple example of phishing, okay. right? You could say, how would I identify all the people in my company who could be fishable? And it's okay, maybe we just have a list of everyone who has access to internet accounts in our in our systems. Okay. What, how could I identify where those accounts would be located? Is it in the cloud and Outlook or Gmail? Is it on their machines? And in, in, in knowing where your, your exposure is. Then afterwards, you move to the next step. How do we actively protect against this? Could we buy an email uh, security solution like Proofpoint or something else that would actively block these types of attacks? And you know, there's a lot of great vendors to choose from in this space. And, and you could also say, well, what if users report phishing emails? That's another protective one where you can report it and block other people from being able to open it when you quarantine these messages. And if I couldn't protect and stop it and the attack actually happens, how would I detect against that, right? And, and so you would say, okay, maybe I'd see things on EDR or antivirus alerts okay. popping up. And, and you just continue to go through those, those five phases, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And doing so allows a much more in-depth risk treatment plan against each of your major threats that cause material impact to your organization. And you would systematically do this with every single threat. So that you think is material, as you said, material to your organization. So whether that was phishing or it was social engineering of some kind, um, or there was some kind of mobile device vulnerability because of the type of business you're in, all that has to go on that matrix. 
Yeah, I, I think you want to look at what are the biggest threats that cost the largest amounts of money. So you do that likelihood impact factorization first. And then out of that, you know, maybe you have 50 threats, but, but out of the 50 threats, only five of them you believe would cost your organization $3 million. And $3 million is enough to have material impact to your financial statements. Well, based on that, how could you take those five threats through this threat and safeguard matrix to build this robust risk treatment plan for your organization? Now, the others, you know, could benefit from it, but then it's also a, is this a valuable use of my time or is this a hundred dollar loss and I don't care, and, right? And that is uh, precisely the point uh, that worry about the major threats. You're not going to build a defense for everything. Uh, I, and, you know, I want listeners to get that out of their mind that you can have hundred percent cybersecurity, that you're going to stop everything. You can do everything. That's not the case. You're saying, look at the risk, look at the greatest risk, defend against the greatest risk. And there's a certain amount of risk that you're going to accept. And in some cases, if it's really, you don't want to defend against it, just reject it altogether and get rid of the system. I guess you could do that as well, but you still focus on the top five, top 10 that's relevant to you. Yeah, and, and this goes back to that earlier piece where we talking about compliance. I don't have to do everything perfect. It's this Pareto principle of, can I do the biggest things that cause 80% of all the damages and stop those really well? And if I can, I can live with the small losses because they don't materially, materially impact my company. So let me ask you a little bit about uh, the X factor. And the X factor is this, um, you know, you, you might have heard, you, you might recall when the Russians uh, did a cyber engagement, shall we say, against the Ukraine, right? And there was a lot of collateral damage with American companies, the likes of Merck, the likes of Federal Express, when they're looking at their threats, that wouldn't have been one of them, but it costed them dearly. I think Merck was down for almost a week. They had to borrow uh, vaccines from the National Res Strategic Reserve uh, to meet the demands that they had uh, while they got back online. And their insurer refused to pay it out, saying that's an act of war, you were collateral damage, tough. Now, the court case is still pending, and we don't know how that's all going to come about. But for something like that, a big X factor, is there some way to account for that? So at the end of the day, I think you need to understand where your adversaries are. The largest national intelligence agencies are like professional football teams. And most companies are, are not at that level. We're in the Pop Warner high school level, yeah. right? And my ability to block Warren Sapp from coming at my quarterback is completely non-existent, right. right? I can do things that can slow him down, but as a 165-pound guy, my ability to stop a 300-pounder no. is just non-existent. Yeah. 
right? And so I, I think you have to have some rationale from that. Now, that being said, most organizations are not largely targeted by nation state actors, right? It's the criminal groups that are trying to just steal money from you. Right. And that's where you have to really have a robust prevention program against that. And so, you know, I, I think we spend too much time on blocking the nation state actors, and they're going to have zero days that you just can't stop. They're going to have really good tradecraft. They're going to have a thousand folks building custom exploits. And and you just don't even have that in, in most small organizations, right? You have a 50-person a cyber team, you know, for a, a medium-sized company, and you think you're going to stop a 5,000-person nation-state actor? Just, you're, you're not even in the same league. And it, even if you thought that you had a decent chance, remember the, the playing field isn't equal. They have to find one vulnerability. You have to stop all the vulnerabilities, yes. right? So so it's not level and they have more resources in the game. So it is a tough place to be against nation state actors. I some very wise advice and uh I, I'm glad you, you someone like you said it uh that has the reputation to to back that up because again, I we're trying to break uh some of the paradigms that are out there in especially in the small medium businesses where people don't uh, they think cybersecurity well I'm covered I'm 100% covered or uh, you know we can defend against everything and and there's a reality and a pragmatism last thing I know we're coming up here on the hour I'd like you to plug some of uh, the things that you're involved with you've been very kind to us please uh, let our listeners know the podcasts and things that you're doing, appearances, papers, books, anything that it's going to be published from you here, Ross. So G. Mark Hardy and myself run a podcast called CISO Tradecraft. Okay. And what it is, is it's a, a weekly podcast that goes out every Friday. And the focus is this. How do we train the next generation of cybersecurity executives? There's a lot of training for technical folks. But how do we build those folks who have the soft skills to win the political battles, the strategies so they understand how to sell cybersecurity across the organization, and enough technical understanding that they understand how to defend the cloud, how to build secure software development programs, how to implement a vuln management or AppSec program, and lead those things. So if anybody wants to learn more, it's free. We're on all the major podcast providers. It's CISO, C-I-S-O, Tradecraft. Additionally, you'll also find I'm very public on LinkedIn. It's Ross Young. You'll see me. Uh, I'm, I'm quite, <laughs> uh, post. I post a lot of links. At least uh, every couple of days, you'll see something from me or the CISO Tradecraft brand. Hey, Ross, do you have a Twitter handle you want to share? So you'll see CISO Tradecraft, but I'm not as active on Twitter. LinkedIn is really my place for, for where I publish Fair my enough. content. Fair enough. We'll put all those links in the show notes for you so that anyone can get to them. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time today on a Friday afternoon to join us. Uh, and it was a, a, a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Ross. 
Well, thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. And I appreciate all the listeners who are willing to improve their understanding of cyber. Take care.